You can open your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, there are Bibles to your left and your right on the tables if you'd like a copy. The scriptures will also be on the screen. 2 Timothy chapter 4, today's sermon comes from verses 1 through 8. Follow along with me as I read. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is writing to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy. He's writing to his apprentice. He's writing the one to the one who will <clears throat> continue the work at Ephesus, but also will continue in leading the church. And as he writes, he, he writes with his final words. We've said that, that this letter are the final words of Paul. And as he writes chapter 4, these are his final, final words. Maybe just a day before his death. Could even be hours. And as he writes to Timothy, he writes and he writes to not only to Timothy, but he writes to each of us. And, and as he gives a charge, there is a different perspective that we gain because of Paul's circumstances. Have you ever known anyone who had a terminal disease or a terminal illness? Have you ever spent time with them? Their life suddenly takes on a different perspective. They're staring down the other end of the barrel. For most of us, at least in our 20s and 30s, we're all about trying to, to wait for life to come to us. Or we're, we're, we're going after life. Like everything's you know, an uphill climb. We're pursuing and we reach this point in life in which it kind of becomes not a pursuit, but more of a slide. <laughs> I talk with people in their 50s and their 60s and their 70s, and they start to, to think about the life that's passed before them. They look with perspective differently at the life that is to come. As Christians, we're all on a journey of, of having our souls open more deeply to the presence of God. And death gives us an incredible perspective because death is that final step of faith in which we come to fully know Him. It's that final step of faith in which we become fully known in God's presence. And Paul is speaking with Timothy on the precipice 
of death. And as he speaks to him, he reminds not only Timothy, but he reminds us of the importance of living with the end in mind. You know, I think we're really wise to spend time with people of all ages. It's one of the things that, um, that I most dislike about the American church is that over the last 30 years or so within the church growth movement, it seems as if what grows most quickly is the homogeneous unit. People who are like you, they look like you, and they, they walk like you, and they shop where you shop, and they smell like you. The problem with that is that we wind up with churches that are filled with people in their 70s and their 80s and churches that are dying. And then we wind up with these new churches of people who are filled with their 20s and their 30s. And we need each other. We need the perspective. The old need the young and the young need the old. I met a new friend uh, at a coffee shop down the street this last week. Uh, His name is Ron. Some of you may know him. Uh, you'll know him if you spend any time in Otherlands. He walks that coffee shop looking for anyone whose eyes will meet his. And as he smiles, he says, how are you doing? And if you take a few minutes, he'll have a conversation with you. And I learned all types of things about Ron this week. He's 77, and one of the favorite stories that he told me over about 20 minutes as he sat and talked to me He said, my wife Emily and I, he told me about his grandkids and he told me about the place they have in Florida. And he said, I keep telling Emily, we need to move down there. And she says, but all our friends are here. He looked at me, he said, I don't tell her, but all our friends are dead. (laughs) And he said, I'd say, Emily, we need to move to Florida. We need to finish in Florida. And she says, oh, maybe in two or three years. And he said, I tell her, Emily, we may be dead in two or three years. We need to go now. There's a different perspective that comes in talking with someone who's looking down the other end of the barrel. It's helpful for us. It's why we stay away from hospitals. It's why we don't like going to funerals. It's why nursing homes are a place that many of you will not go. But there is an added perspective to life that comes when we think about not just our living, but also our dying and the life that is to come. And Paul is on the precipice of that. And with that type of urgency, he gives Timothy an incredible charge. If you look in verse 1, he gives him a command. It's, it's of the, the idea and the perspective of a directive or an order that would be given. Like Paul is serious in his language at this point as he talks to Timothy. And and he tells Timothy in the presence of God, I mean, he sets an incredible scene. We could preach a whole message just on verse 1. But the scene he sets, he says, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. By the way, who will judge the living and the dead at his return? Like, remember, Timothy, you're living your life in such a way, even as a believer, that your works are going to be judged. They won't be judged in order whether you'll be found righteous or not. But remember, Timothy, everyone is going to live responsible for the life and the works and how they live their life. So you're standing in the presence of God who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing. And you're part of this incredible kingdom, Timothy, called the church. 
this incredible family that you've been caught up in, that Jesus is the head. And so he's the one who really shares the marching orders. And we're called to listen and to obey. So Timothy, you obey. I give you this charge. And then we hit verse two, preach the word. Now, as you hear that, how many for you is this verse, how many does it ring true in your ears? And it's like, I, I am very familiar with this text. Anyone? Is anyone very, is there just some, okay. So a couple of people. So if, if you've grown up and being part of a church for a long time, or for me personally, I've got some filters on this text when I hear the, these words, preach the word. Because I went to a seminary, and I think every year someone would teach on, on this passage of Scripture multiple times a year. A bunch of seminary students out there, 2 Timothy 4, preach the Word, be ready, in season and out of season. And like they'd yell it and they'd scream, and some of them would stomp as they said it. And like there's this, there's this mantra and this feeling, it kind of goes along with this text, but... One of the things that I want to try to bring us to as we think about this is that this text is actually not just for preachers. Let me say it a different way. This text is not just simply for pastors. Paul is saying through this text that we are all preachers of the word. If you look in verse 5, he tells Timothy something interesting. He says, Timothy, you do the work of an evangelist. As if to say... It doesn't come natural. Maybe you're not that gifted in it, but you do the work at it. And I think that's most of us. A lot of us, when we read a text like this, we don't think that it applies to us because most people are fearful of public speaking, just downright fearful. I know that because I've asked some of you, hey, I get tired of standing up and welcoming people. Like, you do a much better job. You look so much nicer than I do. Would you do the welcome? And you guys, and you guys say, no, I, I want to have a good weekend. I don't want to be thinking about doing the welcome all weekend, scared to death about standing in front of people. We don't, we don't like public speaking. I didn't like public speaking when I was young. And because of that, we think, oh, that's just for preachers. Those who are maybe good at speaking or who like it or don't mind standing in front of others. And I think a lot of times when we hear the word preach, we associate it instantly with a sermon. But... If any of you have seen Princess Bride, anyone? Yes? Then I want to I draw back to an illustration from Princess Bride, one of my favorite lines, in which Vanzini uses the word over and over again. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. And finally, after like the fourth time, Inigo Montoya says, you keep using that word. I do not think that word means what you think that word means. And in the same way, when, we, when Paul says preach the word, I don't think it means what you think it means. Because to preach means to proclaim the gospel. It's not simply what I'm doing right now. Yes, to preach the word is what I'm doing right now, but it's so much more than that. We can proclaim the gospel when we're on the sidewalk talking with a stranger. We can proclaim the gospel and we can show evidence of the gospel in our life in really small yet meaningful ways. Things like simply being a good listener. Being a friend to someone. Praying over someone when they say, 
I have a hurt or I need something healed or I have a concern, actively saying, I'll pray for you. And then at times even stepping out in faith in that moment and saying, do you mind if right now I pray for you? There are dozens of ways in which we can preach. And with that in mind, Paul says, preach the word, proclaim the gospel, not just to unbelievers, but proclaim the gospel to unbelievers and to believers. We need to be reminded that we need to hear the word of God preached regularly to ourselves, to our friends. And if you're not good at preaching, then maybe you can practice with some other believers who need to be reminded of the good news of the gospel. This morning, I want to share four quick characteristics with you, characteristics of good preachers. We find them in the text. The first Paul says is that good preachers have a sense of urgency. He says, be ready in season and out of season. So be ready to preach the word when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. Can I say that it's rarely ever convenient to stop and share the gospel with someone. It's rarely ever convenient to slow down long enough to consider others and to begin to pray for them and seek that they would know Jesus and that they would move from unbelief to belief that it's rarely ever convenient. If we're going to live with a sense of urgency in thinking about those who don't yet know Jesus, then we all have to stop and consider the pace of our lives. The pace of our lives. We are a people who are urgent about everything. We're urgent about everything, yet we are a people who give ourselves wholly and completely to no one. We run around and we're urgent about everything in our life. Technology rules the day. Our calendars control us. We wake up in a rush. We go to bed as if there wasn't enough time in the day. And if we're going to live with urgency in considering those who are outside the kingdom of God and those who don't know Jesus, we're just going to have to flat out slow down. You know, there's a study that has been made, and interestingly enough, um, it uncovered that the single most beneficial thing you can do in order to raise healthy kids, the single most beneficial thing that you can do is to sit down with them and eat four meals a day. Not that day, four meals a week. Four meals a day, that'd be good. There you go. The single most beneficial thing that you can do to raise healthy kids is to sit down four times a week and have dinner together. To turn the TV off, to have adult and, and, and child conversation. They say that they will actually pick up more vocabulary words in that conversation over an hour than they would if you sat down and if you read books to them at night. You get around the table and you turn off the TV and you say, we're just going to slow down and in the ordinary stuff of life, we're going to meet one another and we're actually going to be together. So many of us are so busy in our life. See, the pace of our life informs our ability to be present. 
The pace of our life informs our ability to be present. And because of the pace of our life is so frenetic, we're present with no one. We're not present with Jesus. We're not present with our family. We're not present with our coworkers. It's why oftentimes when the Holy Spirit actually sinks in and gets through our thick skull and we begin to realize, oh, I think God might have been on the move. Have you ever noticed how it's 48 or 72 hours later? Like it takes God two or three days to catch up with most of us because that's how we lack presence. And I think for most of us, if we want to have an urgency, we need to figure out how to slow down. One of the things that we experienced a couple of weeks ago, um, Katie and I went and we were trained with um, a lot of other church planners who are in our network. And, and we were sent home with a piece of homework. And, and out of two days, a couple of former church planning, now psychologists, guys who are in their 60s, PhDs, this is the homework they sent us home with. We want you to regularly, if you can daily, go for a 20-minute walk. And as you go for a 20-minute walk, all we want you to do is experience your senses. We want you to smell what you should really smell. We want you to feel what you should really feel. Feel the grass beneath your feet. We want you to touch what there is to touch. We want you to see what there is to see. We don't want you to go out and think, oh, I've got to pray. Oh, I've got to go find somebody. Oh, what am I thinking about? We just want you to learn to be present. Because we as a people don't even know how to be present with ourselves, much less with God or with anybody else. And so if we're going to have an urgency, you're saying this seems backwards. You're talking about urgency and then you're talking about slowing down. Listen, if we're going to have an urgency for the things that are on God's heart, then we are going to have to slow down In in order that our hearts would begin to breathe to be okay with ourselves, to begin to reflect on the things that are on God's heart in order that we could begin to think about those who are far from Him. Good preachers have an urgency. They also have a relevancy. Paul says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove comes from the fact that there are some people who are tormented by doubt. They're tormented by doubt. They need to be convinced. They need gentle correction in their life. So gentle correction looks like when I would tell my kids, uh, I want you to consider this. Consider it. Consider not riding your bike barefoot because I know how that ends. It ends badly. I've, I've ended with bloody toes on the pavement. I know how that ends. So consider. So he says, reprove. But then he says that there are some people who need further instruction. They need to be rebuked. There are those who have fallen into sin. This includes believers and non-believers. And I'm convinced that the church needs to get a lot more serious with accountability in our lives in which we remind each other of the gospel. And when we're not living in light of the gospel, that we would hold each other accountable and that we would be willing to receive a rebuke, also willing to give a rebuke to someone. And then finally he says, you're to exhort. You're to exhort. There are those around us And I don't think we think of non-believers in this way. But do you realize that some of your neighbors and some of your coworkers are literally haunted by fears? They are haunted by the fear of death. They are haunted by the fear of addiction. 
You know, for most of us, we don't even really remember or truly have a good picture of the grace of God in our lives because for some of us, we were saved at such a young age that we've experienced so much of what it's like to be with life in the church and so many people who are grace-filled around us. But for some of you, you'd say, that's not been my story. And God's grace is so rich to you because you know what it's like to live in utter fear. You know what it's like to live with the weight of sin wrapped around you and its chains binding you and you're unable to get away. You know that. And as we think of the gospel, so oftentimes we think of ourselves when we think about sharing the gospel with others. We think, how am I going to appear? And and is it going to be awkward? And are they going to think I'm weird? What if I'm kind to someone? Will they think, oh, he's really weird. He smiles a lot. He's kind. He does good deeds. Why is he doing these things? And we're scared and we're fearful to step out, but we don't think at all about their perspective and their story. We don't think about the fear that binds them and and what life looks like without hope, without peace, without joy that's found in Jesus as you're just running off in all directions looking for something to satisfy. Some people need to be exhorted. I think great preaching happens in the seemingly ordinary parts of our life. No, great preaching doesn't come through awkward pitches. Some of you have you've grown up with this method of evangelism in which you were taught that you get together and you, you pray real hard and then you go out and you knock on people's doors <clears throat> and share four spiritual laws. Or, and that, that's not a terrible thing to do. I, I think that's less and less effective these days. Some of you are taught that evangelism comes through an awkward pitch. You know, you're, you're watching the game. And they blow the whistle and they say, oh, wow, that's a penalty. And you say, yeah, you know, as you say penalty, it makes me think, did you know Jesus paid the penalty for our sins? Like, that's terrible. And some of you think that that's what evangelism's really like, like taking a conversation and awkwardly, like grinding the gears, kind of. Have you ever driven a straight shift? And, you know, let's talk about Jesus for a little bit and those who are bold and courageous and don't mind being really awkward. That's not what evangelism is about. I think evangelism happens best in the most ordinary, seemingly ordinary parts of our life as we live with urgency and relevancy. And we also, good evangelists, are those who are patient. Paul says to be patient. You know, we're really slow to change as adults, really slow to change. And uh, most of our evangelism efforts are are set up. If you really look at them, let let me just say something real quick. I don't know if you guys struggle with this or if it's just me. Um, Do you ever sit and struggle and think, man, am I just not good at sharing the gospel? Am I just not good at being an evangelist? Do you ever have those thoughts? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you, yeah. Do you ever have the thoughts, man, I wonder if our church just really stinks at evangelism. Like we're kind of small. We kind of struggle to grow. I wonder if we're just not good evangelists. Any of you ever think that? I struggle with that sometimes. Let me be honest with you. When I look around at what church growth really is, it's a lot of swapping of sheep. It's a lot of people who are saying, oh yeah, man, I love this new church. I love this new thing. I'm going to go try it out. I'm already a believer at some level or some point. 
And here's why I'm saying this. I don't want you to become discouraged because the truth of the matter is it takes years for most people to come to know Jesus because adults are really slow to change. I think it's why kids, we see the level and the percentage of children who come to know Jesus and it's really high because kids, they're fine with change. They love change. They'll change at a moment's notice. But adults... The percentage of adults who actually come to know Jesus in their adulthood is really low because I think we're really slow to change. And most of our evangelism efforts are set up for quick change. So if you, if you measured an adult on a scale of 1 to 10 of like coming to know Jesus, and uh, most of our evangelism strategies are set up for people who are about a 7 or an 8 or a 9. You know what I mean? Like it's set up for people who are like waiting and ready and like they're they're ready to pray a prayer. They're ready to go. They already have a knowledge, a vocabulary. They've already jumped over a lot of hurdles. But the truth of the matter is we live in a day and time, at least in our context, in which most of my neighbors and I think most of your coworkers are probably a one, two or three. Like as you begin to share language like God and gospel, and sin, and truth, and forgiveness, and righteousness, and holy. Like, you can't even share those words without having to define them. Much less people seeing real movement yet. And so it takes years. And, and I want to I bring us to that because I want to remind us that we would be a people who are patient. That we wouldn't give up so easily. Look at Jesus' very disciples. Jesus, the greatest discipler, he spent three and a half years with these men. They still questioned and they doubted after three years. How long will we be patient with those individuals that God has put in our life? Characteristics of a preacher, they have urgency, relevancy, patience, and finally, intelligence. Intelligence. Sharing the gospel is more than just four spiritual laws and holding people accountable to, their, uh, to, to what you've said and saying, hey, if you died tonight, do you know that you'd, when you stood before Jesus, do you know how you'd answer this question? It's more than that. I think one of the ways that we can be wise in the way that we share the gospel with others is to ask them, hey, what do you believe? What's your faith? What's your belief system? See, a lot of times when we begin to share the gospel and we have conversations with others, oftentimes we'll feel as if we're being attacked or we'll feel as if others are looking at us critically. But the truth of the matter is we all have faith in something. Even agnostics, they're trusting in something. Not much. I don't like their plan. They're trusting in something. Ask people, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? What are you putting your faith in? Paul writes to Timothy and he ends this passage uh, giving a warning in verses 3 and 4. He could preach a message or a whole series of messages on these two verses. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth. They'll wander off into myths. You can turn on the TV. You can find this any day. People call it a health and wealth gospel. Truth is, you can turn to most of our churches and you can find this. 
So anytime in which you feel as if you're being beaten over by the law, anytime you leave from a sermon hearing just do more, just be, be better, you're not measuring up, um, that's just morality. It's not the truth of the gospel. And Paul is warning that there will be those who will teach. And just a really easy way to measure if a, if a church is gospel-centered, if they are teaching the Word of God, if they're teaching in alignment with um, the gospel, is I'm really leery of churches who preach messages and never mention a scripture. And that's a lot of our churches today. Or, or they'll, they'll flash a verse on the screen. They won't put a reference up. And then they'll kind of preach a good truth from that or a good principle. I'm really <clears throat> kind of questioning of those churches. Because Paul begins by saying very simply, and I think this needs to be said, preach the word. Not myths, not principles, not the best from the, the culture today. Preach this word. It's the only word. And like sometimes we forget that. So I think it's best if we're in churches where we're actually preaching the word. And so if you attend a church after you leave here and uh, you go there regularly and they don't open this book, you might all find a new church. That would be my encouragement to you. Preach the word because... They're those who wander off into other myths. I talked with um, someone recently, and they're part of a church that I would call very liberal, and that they don't see Scripture as the authority which they're under. And they said, well, we really have three guiding principles. We have the Scriptures, and then we have tradition, and then we have wisdom, reason. And reason and tradition can very easily pull you into the cultural mandate in which all of a sudden you're saying, well, why aren't these things okay? Well, we're just called to be loving. Instead of really looking at the scriptures and saying, this is the only word we're called to preach. This is the only word we're called to live by. This is the only word that we're called to be under its authority. Preach the word. He goes on and he gives... Timothy instruction in verse 5, he says it won't be easy. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He's telling Timothy, your calling will not be easy, but don't give up. Don't give up. Now, as we end today, why is it that for most of us that when we think about our lives, that they aren't characterized with that kind of urgency? They aren't characterized with that kind of relevancy in which we're looking for opportunities in order to preach the Word. I think for most of us that we don't really see this calling that Paul's given to Timothy, we don't really see that as part of our identity. We don't associate uh, preaching and evangelism as part of our identity. Instead, it's more of a sales pitch that we go out to do. And we divorce discipleship from real life and community. And evangelism just becomes something that we do to someone rather than introducing them to the way of Jesus by involving them in the community of Jesus as we do life together. And I want to encourage you, if you say, man, I really struggle with this whole thing of preaching the gospel and I really, I really want to, man, I want to be better at it. 
One of the best things that you can do is just get involved in the community, get involved in a missional community, invite your friends to come along with you. That's the first step in preaching the gospel. Just say, come along with me. We're just going to eat together. Come experience life with us. We're going to work together. Come and serve with us. Come and meet my friends. Let me meet your friends. Jesus practiced this so well um, so many different times. One of my favorite stories is when Jesus met the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 at the the well. And Jesus, as he uh, preached to her, he gave us a really incredible example of how we can share the gospel. See, he entered into her world. Jesus would enter into people's worlds, particularly the world of their souls. And he approached their souls through their emotions. So you got this woman, she's showing up at high noon, the sun's beating down, she's drawing water, Jesus is going, something's not right here, something doesn't fit. Why would you come draw water in the middle of the day? And Jesus knows about her. And as he asks these questions, eventually it comes out, know the man that you're living with is not your husband. In fact, you've been married five times. This man's not your husband. And Jesus goes right to the source of her belief and her faith. See, her faith was all caught up in her sexuality. Her faith was caught up in in the idolatry of a husband will be the one who will fix me who will fix things, who will make life worth living. And Jesus introduced a faith that was better. Jesus introduced a water from a well that would never run dry. And Jesus began to show her how he was the Messiah, how he was the good news. And it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference when we begin to see that we can use the ordinary parts of our life in order to proclaim the gospel. I wonder if you would commit with me just to begin praying, just to begin praying for people who are far from Jesus. We never see anything happen in the Scriptures in which the Holy Spirit comes and He moves apart from prayer. Prayer is always uh, what prefaces the movement of the Spirit. And maybe you would say, you know what, I'm not good at sharing the Gospel and... I don't really like talking about something that's so personal. Truth of the matter is, the things that are most personal to us are the things that we care the most deeply about and that we share with others about. Share about our kids. Share about our families. Why would we not share with others about Jesus? I want to challenge you that you would begin to take 10 minutes a day before you go to work and that you would pray for your coworkers that you would set aside 10 minutes within your calendar and that you would say, I'm going to take these 10 minutes. That's an hour a week. That's 50 hours a year that you would begin to spend in time of prayer for those who are living in unbelief, those who are close to you, those who are family, friends, coworkers. If we're going to see the truth of the gospel proclaimed, if we're going to see the kingdom of God move forward, we're going to have to begin thinking about our work. We're going to have to begin thinking about the fact that Monday is just, Monday morning is just as important as Sunday morning. In fact, I live at my work about 40 times more than I live with my church family. And so we've got to begin to think about the people that we spend time with the way that Jesus thinks about them. And I don't know any better way to do that than begin to pray. 
If you say, I'm not good at praying alone, then come and pray with us. We started this week, Wednesday morning, 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., over in chapel. We had a wonderful time of prayer. Uh, Charlie, the owner, he showed up early. He said, God woke me up at 5 this morning. I always wake up at 6. God woke me up at 5. So I thought, I'll come pray with these guys. We had a wonderful time praying. Realize answers to God's prayer during that time. It's just like I was just more aware of the presence of the Lord all that morning in seeking Him and making Him known. I bumped into one of my friends, Marcus, that I've been praying for, spent a little bit of time with him. What would it be like if we said, I'm going to begin to spend time in prayer? See, when we spend time in prayer, it's when the Holy Spirit moves. Acts chapter 4 The believers pray for boldness, and as they pray for boldness, they prayed, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. See, the reason why we need to pray is because we don't have what it takes in order to see people move from unbelief to belief. That's only a work of the Spirit. We don't have the courage that it takes to share the truths of the gospel. But the Holy Spirit comes and He moves. Not only does He give us courage, but He does things, things that we can't do. He shows up. He brings conviction. And He brings power that you and I don't have. We need the Spirit in our lives. We need the Spirit to realize the grace of God, but we also need the Spirit in order that we would share the grace of God with others who are around us. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us. I just want to pray. Um, I want to end today by praying that, that God would be at work in our hearts and lives. I want to pray that we would be able to look back on our lives and and say the kind of things that Paul ends this text with, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Father, we look at a text like this and it's so easy for us to have filters and God to, to feel guilty or even to feel shame as we think about how often our lives are lived uh, just with us in mind, even our prayer life. So many of us have such lukewarm prayer lives because all we really pray about is ourselves. Father, I pray that you would help us to realize the identity that you've given us as ambassadors of Jesus. I pray that each person in this room today would recognize the fact that you have gifted them to be a proclaimer of the gospel through their words, through their deeds, through the prayers that they pray. God, I want to pray that we would as a people, that we would slow down long enough in order that we would realize 
that we're just common, ordinary people who've been saved by an extraordinary God with extraordinary grace. And Jesus, I pray that your name would be a name that is on our tongues. Jesus, we pray that we would see your gospel go forth. We pray that you would give us hearts, hearts that spend time for praying for our neighbors, for our coworkers. God, we pray that we wouldn't be a people who give up. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and move in boldness and power. God, that you would shake our lives. I think about the Welch revival and the ordinary people that you used, and they would just sit and wait, unprepared, looking stupid. They would sit and wait for your Holy Spirit to come and move. And when you moved, you moved in power, so much so that you changed the culture around them. God, might we be a people who would be willing to be patient yet urgent about the things that you are urgent about, that we would be willing to wait in prayer and wait on your Holy Spirit to come. God, I just sense that you're preparing our congregation for something. I don't know what it is. God, I pray that we would be a people who would be aware of the time and the setting and the context that you've placed us in. God, I pray that we would be a people who wouldn't live lives just thinking that today's just another day. God, I pray for the lady, Trisha, who was outside our doors this morning, track marks on her arms, asking for money. God, I pray for Trisha that you would bring healing into her life today. God, I pray that you would, you would help us to see that we don't have what it takes in order to share your gospel, but that through your Holy Spirit that you can move in boldness and in power. God, help us to believe and to pray with imagination. God, help us to actually believe that you desire to move in the way that you do, because you desire to see Midtown revolutionized for the sake of the gospel. You desire to see Memphis ring out and that the truce from this city would be something more than next year represents the 50th anniversary in which Martin Luther King was shot and killed here. But God, we pray that healing would continue to come to this city. We pray that we would be ordinary instruments of your grace and that your gospel would resound from our lives as we submit to you through your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people say,